Thank you, Jamie and Adam, for playing. Uh, so while I was in the middle of that solo, Adam, I, I felt like God was, I thought I was hearing that I should have played the saxophone, not the trumpet. And, and then I confessed that sin and moved on. But thank you. That's great. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17, page 239 in your church Bible. We're continuing our series in 1 Samuel, and just about every week we've been asking the question, what kind of a person do I need to be? What kind of a church do we need to be that could be involved in extending God's kingdom on the earth today? Just a little review, God made the world to display his glory. That's what we read in Genesis 1 and 2. He, he made human beings in the image of God so that we could know God and experience his glory and relate to him, but also so that we could manage the world under his authority, which would bring great glory to God, but would have also brought, brought great good to the world. And if you haven't noticed... We're not managing the world too well these days. And of course, I think the Bible would tell us, if we take God's word at face value, the Bible would say one of the reasons you're having trouble um, managing the world under the authority of God is you've lost, you've lost connection with the God who made you and the God who made the world. And since you don't understand who he is and, and what he's done, you're having trouble seeing what you ought to be doing and how you should be rightly related to that God, the one who made us and the one who purposed us for his glory. So this morning we want to see uh, two keys. You're going to need both of these keys. I want you to see two keys that will help you individually, but also help us as a church to uh, see the kingdom of God move forward here in Princeton, in our lives, in our families, and certainly here in the church in our community. Now, before we get to the first key, I need to summarize 1 Samuel 17 a little bit. It's a lot of text. You can read it this afternoon, but you're going to be glad that I am summarizing this for you, okay? Uh, often what preachers do when you get your sermon ready, you preach it and you time it. I'm sure some of you wished I timed it more than I do sometimes. But I timed it. The first time I preached it, it was 50 minutes. That doesn't work here. It got down lower, but maybe not low enough. This is my last edit. It wasn't too bad at 9.30, but you're being, we'd be glad I summarized. Let me summarize 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17, what we have here is God, God has chosen the nation of Israel to be this nation where he has disclosed who he is and what he's about to them in hopes that they would understand who God is, that they would orient their whole nation around who God is, and that they would be a light to the world. Well, that project's not going too well. In 1 Samuel, they have their first king, Saul. He's really not helpful. A new king has been anointed, that's David, but he's not on the throne yet. And so now what's happening is 
There is an enemy of Israel, the Philistines, who've entered the scene. And what, so what you have in 1 Samuel 17 is you have a, a, a hill with the armies of Israel on one hill. There's a valley in between, and the Philistines are on the other hill. Now, I know some of you, when you see, hear this, you go, oh, brother, more religious wars? I mean, this is why I can't stand the Bible. I mean, well, no, this isn't quite like the religious wars that the Bible would condemn. This is God working through his people to bring judgment to the Philistines. They weren't a good people. They were cruel. They were violent. There was a debauchery even in their worship of the false gods that they worshiped. And God was using Israel to bring judgment to them. And let's just be honest. If God gave, God gave you and I what we deserved this afternoon, that wouldn't be a good thing. I mean, that would be a, not a pretty picture. If you think about it this way, what if God gave America what it deserved? So tonight at 6 o'clock, God's going to give every American what they deserve before him. And not only for the individual sins, but let's talk about all the other things. And again, I'm not trying to run America down. I love America. It's great. I'm, I'm happy to be born here. I'm happy for all of the blessings. But let's face it, how we treated the indigenous peoples of this land how we treated the, the, the African slave trade and a whole host of other things. If God gave America what we deserve tonight at six o'clock, we wouldn't all be gathered here going, you know, above the fruited plain. We would be singing. Well, we wouldn't be singing. <laughs> that would be part of the problem. But if we were singing, we'd be singing over the asphalt parking lot. I mean, something like that, the asphalt parking lot, because we wouldn't be here. So God is rightfully using the people of God to bring judgment to a nation that certainly deserves it. And so they're lined up on two hills with a valley in between. The Philistines have a secret weapon. His name is Goliath. He's a giant. He might be over nine feet tall, according to the Bible. And he has all of the latest uh, warfare technology that you could have. He's an amazing physical specimen. He has an amazing piece of armor. He's got a javelin. He's got a spear, a helmet. He's got a shield bearer. He is fully equipped with the latest warfare technology. And he comes out and over the valley, he says to the Israel, hey, why don't you pick one guy? Pick your best guy. He'll come out. He and I'll go after it. If I win, you serve us. If he wins, we'll serve you. And now you have the people of God who had promises that God would be with them to fight their battles for them. They have a king who was supposed to fight the battles for them, as we read a couple of chapters ago. And guess what? The people of God respond with, freak out city, we're scared to death of this giant. And for 40 days, for six and a half weeks, Goliath comes out in the morning and the evening with the same challenge and the people of God essentially do nothing except get scared. It's an appalling state of affairs. In the middle of this, David shows up. Now, David apparently was not old enough to be in the army, but three of his brothers were in the army. And so David's father sent David to the, the camp with some supplies for his three brothers, but also to find out how his three brothers were doing to bring word back to his father for them. So David shows up, gives the supplies that his father gave him to the quartermaster there at the camp. And then all of a sudden they start to line up for battle. I'm sure David was all excited. Hey, man, we're going to see some action. And Goliath comes out, says the same words he's been saying for six and a half weeks. The people of Israel are terrified, and I think David is appalled. Frankly, as you read the text, I think he's shocked. How in the world 
are the people of God who have the promises of God. And we've had a, a God who delivered us from Egypt with all this supernatural work and the plagues, led us to this land, said he would be with us and fight the battles for him. How in the world can we be scared to fight this Philistine who doesn't have the promises of God, who is, has rejected the God of the universe, the God of Israel? How in the world can, can, can we not fight someone? Why won't somebody go and do what God has told us to do? Well, David starts to talk like this. David understands, you can see earlier in the chapter, again, you can read it this afternoon. David understands that what Goliath is doing is not simply challenging the armies of Israel. He is actually deriding and defying the very God of Israel. It's not just that Goliath wants to have a fight. Goliath is basically mocking the God of Israel. Dragging the name of God through the dirt. And none of the people of God dare to risk their lives to defend the honor of the God they say is the God of the universe. Well, Saul finds out that David's interested in fighting. And Saul, King Saul, the king brings David in. And David says, I'll fight this guy. And and Saul's like, no, 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 you're, you're too young. You don't have any armor. And David says, no, I was a shepherd. In the past, God delivered me from a bear that came in to, to take one of my, my sheep. He, and then there was a lion that took, and God delivered me from there. David has an understanding, a personal relationship with God, where he says, God was faithful to me in the past. I know what the promises of God say, that he will fight our battles for us because we are the chosen people of God. And I know that God will help me to fight this Goliath in the present. I'm ready to fight him. And Saul's like, no, 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 no. And then Saul says, okay, well, I guess he's going to go. So tries to put some armor on David. David doesn't really like the armor. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And David says, I'm going to go with my stick. I'm going to bring my sling. Now, this sling was a pretty... It was a, a powerful, it's not a slingshot, okay? He, he didn't go to Goliath and go, ding, right? It's a slingshot, right? It's got a leather pouch where a, a, maybe a baseball or tennis-sized ball rock would be in. And you sling it around your head like this, and you could get that thing going 140 miles an hour. That'll hurt. But David says, I'm going to go with what I know I have, and I am willing to fight this Philistine in order to vindicate the name of my God. Now we pick up the story there in verse 41. Now what's most important about this text is not the battle scene, but it's the words that are said that give us the first key, the first key that we need to to have in our hands to be able to, to work with, to be people who are extending the reputation of God. Verse 41. The Philistine, Goliath, moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. This is a biblical trash talking. Right, But David's pretty good too. Listen to what he says. So important because we're going to see the first key that we need to hold on to here in verse 45 and 46 and 47. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, 
You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beast of the earth. And notice this phrase, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 47, and that all this assembly, I think he's speaking mostly to the people of Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. The first key you want to be a person and we want to be a church that's going to make a difference in, in seeing the kingdom of God deepen and expand, we have to be people who have a passion for the reputation of God. That's what David has, but that's what we need to be. David has a passion for the reputation of a God. David is concerned that people know who God is and know what he's done He is concerned about that reputation. He's concerned about the glory of God is another way to say it. He's concerned about God's reputation and he's willing to do whatever it takes to see that the world, the world and the people of God would know that God is real. God is all powerful. God is all glorious. God is all knowing. God is all uh, uh, gracious. God is all justice. He, He wants people to know that God is real and he is willing to do whatever it takes to see the reputation of God deepened among God's people and extended beyond God's people to the world. That's the first key. That is pretty important. If you think about it, think about the Lord's Prayer. Remember the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, which art in heaven, What? Hallowed be your name. It's the same kind of idea. When Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he says, you better pray. In fact, your first request ought to be about the hallowing, the honoring, the extension of God's name. God's name encapsulating who God is in his character and what he's done in his actions. And he goes on to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first three requests of the, of the Lord's prayer is all to do about God's priorities. How much of that was your prayer life this week? Concerned about the reputation of God. Concerned that the knowledge of God was deepening at Stonehill or deepening in your own life. How concerned were you about God's kingdom and his priorities? See, we're pretty good with the give us this day our daily bread. We pray that a lot. We do it in two ways. Number one, here's what I need. Bread, career, family, spouse, and I want it today, right? But how often is the bulk of our prayer life focused on the name of God being known and understood and being experienced and being lived out, not only in the church, but in the world. This is the first key. And what's interesting about this is that God's purpose for himself, I don't have time to turn here, and Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11, you ought to read that this afternoon. 
Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, God himself says that this is his purpose. What God wants to do is to, to display the glory of who he is and what he's done to the world. That's what drives him. Now, it's interesting. I've, I've mentioned this before, but in the last year, simply minding my business at Community Park Pool, trying to get a little exercise, I've run into four different people who have told me while we're swimming laps, you know why I don't believe in God? Because your God is always asking people to glorify himself. Your God's a megalomaniac. Now, I didn't learn that at seminary, the answer to that question. It, it took me aback at first. But it's not a megalomaniac. If God truly is the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most just, the most righteous, the most gracious, the most loving being in the world, it is not wrong for him for, to, to want people to know that. Because if you don't understand what the greatest being in the world is like, how do you orient your life and order your life under his authority if you don't know what the best and greatest and most powerful being in the world is all about? You know, we do this all the time humanly, right? We often say this, if you don't go and, and appreciate good music, you're never going to know what good music is, right? We tell our kids that, right? The music in our generation was great. The music you listen to, kids, are terrible, Right? I do this a little bit. I, I admit it. I'm a little bit of a theater geek, okay? I was in Shakespeare duologue in high school, okay? Did Macbeth twice, third place both times out of three teams. <laughs> Still looking on my resume for college. And Denise and I figure out the cheapest way to go to Broadway, and I love to go to Broadway, and I love to do it, and I've mentioned this from the pulpit, and I've had some of your... A lot of times as a high school kid will run up to me and say, hey, my parents finally took me to Broadway. And I said, great, what did you see? And they said, frozen. <laughs> yeah, next year they're going to take me to the Lion King. And I, I don't have the heart to tell them, your family didn't take you to Broadway. They took you to Disney World, the New York location. You didn't see Les Mis. You didn't see Fiddler on the Roof. You didn't see Hamilton. How can you appreciate Frozen? That's not Broadway. I mean, that's, that's in my head, right? I've got this whole hierarchy. The reality is, if you and I don't get a handle on who God is and how great and awesome and majestic and powerful, and if we don't live our lives in light of that purpose, that the reputation of God would be deepened among God's people and would be extended in the world. If that's not the purpose we're living for, we're not living according to the very purpose that God has for himself. And of course, the other problem we have here is that <laughs> even as God's people, right? Even as believers in Jesus Christ, we have competing purposes that run around in our hearts. Do, do we not? I mean, one minute we're thinking, yes, it's all for the glory of God. The next minute, it's all for the glory of me. One minute, it's all for the reputation of, of, of Jesus and his name. And the next minute, it's my reputation is critical here. Don't we, do we not do this? For some reason, I don't know. I was adult as a child. But one of the things I really wanted to do and one of the greatest things that I was, you know, that I, that I dreamed about as a young boy is I wanted to play football, American football. Now, the problem was I was very small. 
But I decided I'm going to play football. And I'm telling you what, pound for pound, I'm going to be the most ferocious football player that's ever lived. And I kind of was that. I made the team. It was a miracle. I was the smallest kid on the team. When we got to wear our jerseys to, to school. My jersey came all the way over my hands. That's how embarrassing it was. But I was a ferocious little player. I played hard. I played, I, I hit people hard. Now, when I hit people, it, it, nobody moved that much, you know, like, whoa. But I would hold on to you and I would tackle you. You might drag me for a few yards, but you were going down. And that was my purpose. And I made the team and I started. I was the center defensive back. Well, my mother had ideas. She didn't like me playing football. She thought it was dangerous and crazy to play. And so before the start of the season, we had been practicing for a couple of weeks. She made me watch this ABC News special, on, and it showed every single player in middle school and high school that had a serious injury. And at the end of this show, I'm freaked out. And I know I'm small. You know, I'm like, oh, my, this is terrible. And so now I'm a divided person, Okay. One minute I'm saying, I will be the most ferocious defensive back the world has ever seen. The next minute I'm saying, I just want to walk off the field and be alive. I'm conflicted. Well, we went down south. I was in Miami. We went down south. We played this team, Marathon. It's in the Keys, Florida Keys. Have you ever been there? It's great. They got great key lime pie down there at the restaurant down there near Marathon. Anyway, we were playing Marathon. It was a bigger school than we were, and they had bigger players, and they had a Goliath kind of a person who was the running back. And I saw him practicing before the game, and I, I was conflicted. I will be ferocious. This man will never make it past me. Even if he drags me, I will hold on to him. And then the other part of me was my mother and my voice going, uh, save yourself. Risk nothing. So we kicked off to Marathon. They get the ball on the 25-yard line. First play from scrimmage. Again, I'm in the center defensive back, so I can, see the, I can see the center. I can see the quarterback. And behind him, I can see Goliath, okay, that running back. Sure enough, the first play of the game, the defensive line of my team is, is parted like the Red Sea. The middle linebacker is taken out by a lineman, and Goliath is coming right at me. Now, this happened within, you know, two seconds probably, but it felt like a, an hour, and I kept thinking, ferocious defensive back, pound for pound, the greatest defensive back ever, or let's save yourself and walk off the field tonight. And I was conflicted. I didn't know what to do. And what I ended up doing is my mother won out. I dove to the ground. <laughs> Goliath thankfully didn't step on me, but he just walked, ran over me, 75-yard touchdown. We never touched him. While I'm on the ground, I have to fake as if I really wanted to hit the guy. Because remember, I still wanted to be a little bit ferocious. So I'm pounding the ground, you know, like, I missed him. But inside, I'm saying, I'm alive, man, I'm alive. <laughs> this is exactly what happens to us. Even believers in Jesus Christ. Some days... We're all about the reputation of God. In fact, this morning, you probably were as you sang all these songs. I heard you. God is great. He's amazing. Even so, come Lord Jesus. You're the best. You're my shelter in the storm. You're my everything. I love you. I worship you. Well, what happens tomorrow afternoon? Is that what you're going to be thinking? 
Is the reputation of God something that's going to be a, a, a guiding factor in what you do, how you operate, what you say, what you think, how you pray? The reality is, is that God uh, is trying to change us. One of the ways the glory of God gets manifested in our life is when it begins to change us and make us more like Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Does that consume your thinking? When you see that you're not where you need to be? How about this verse? This is an amazing verse. It says, by this... All men will know that you are my disciples. In other words, one of the ways the glory of God is seen in the world is by the love we have for one another. Do you love other people? I mean, we're Princetonites, right? Here's our problem. We're too busy to love people. And we're too busy to be loved. The reason I know this is I'm the pastor of care. I find that I have this list of people that are in crisis. I call them. Hey, leave me a message. Call me back when you're ready. Love you, man. Praying for you. you know, three weeks later. Hey, thanks for the prayers. Didn't have time to call you. Okay. Well, it's crazy. We're too busy to love. We're too busy to be loved. What about the verses where we, 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 we see that God forgives our sin? He, he takes away our sin, forgives us freely. And yet, we have a hard time forgiving other people in our life. What happened to a passion for the reputation of God? Now, that's the first key. But there's a second key that's equally important. Because if all you leave here today and think, okay, I got I to up my game here. I've, I've, I've got to be more passionate about the reputation of God. And you try in your own strength to do that. Guess what? You're not going to be able to do it. And you won't be able to do it consistently unless you embrace the second key. So I want you to turn to John 12. It'll be very important. Sometimes in, particularly in the Old Testament, because everything is looking forward to Christ. Yes, you look at the text itself. We're looking at 1 Samuel 17. But you need to see the whole picture of the Bible to get a better sense of what 1 Samuel 17 is talking about. John 12, 27 Jesus is talking about his own death. And notice how he connects this to the glory of the Father's name. Verse 27, Jesus is speaking, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Okay, so what's happening is Jesus is troubled. Why? He's thinking about his impending death on a cross. You know, shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? It's kind of like, take this cup from me. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Notice the connection here. Jesus is saying that glory, that the Father will be glorified. God will be glorified in what? In his death. The second key here is you have to understand, you have to be able to see that the, the, the greatest glory that God displayed was at the cross of Jesus Christ for you. 
you got to be able to see that to connect it with the first key, which is to have a passion for the reputation of God. You need to see Jesus, when he died on that cross, is vindicating the name of God in, in, in an unbelievably powerful way. On the one hand, Jesus is vindicating the justice of God. In other words, when Jesus is on that cross, the sin, our sin will be placed on him. He will receive the punishment that we deserved. So God is a God of justice. And it's very interesting to me is we want our human judges to be just, but we don't want God to be just. Isn't that interesting? Think about your cul-de-sac where you live. Say there's 20 houses where you live. And a masked gunman came and robbed half of the families on your block. And they caught him after a month and they had a trial and he was found guilty and the judge let him off. Your cul-de-sac would be crazed. You would be incensed. You would say, what kind of justice is this? This judge is not right. He's, da- he's let this dangerous guy loose. Where's the punishment? And yet when we talk about God and his justice, we're like, oh no, we don't want God to be just. Why? Because we know we're guilty. Jesus vindicates the name of God in God's justice by allowing God to be perfectly just by pouring out his righteous punishment on sin when Jesus has our sin on him on that cross. But also this allows God to be able to demonstrate and vindicate his name in terms of his love and mercy because now he's able to freely give us his grace and mercy and not compromise his justice. And when he gives us this mercy and grace that we can freely receive by faith, his love and his justice can be vindicated in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has done that for you. And if you keep your eye on that, that is what can motivate you to be more consistent and more comprehensive in being zealous for the reputation of God in this church, in your life, in your family, and in the broader community and in the world. As we close, I want to sort of bring another perspective as well to this. David, of course, wins his battle against Goliath. And that's exciting. He does go all out for the reputation of, of God. But I think we need to be honest with ourselves. If you and I really lived more consistently in light of God's reputation and that purpose was driving us more, it might not go always too well for you. I think we forget because we live in this country that has many wonderful blessings. For many Christians in many parts of the world, simply sharing their faith with another person puts them in danger. Simply coming to church is a danger for many, many, many believers. Having lived overseas, I've seen that the, the difficulty that believers have living in a context where it costs them to do things that we do here in freedom. I just want to tell you a story. So many, many of you know the story. I was reading the, the biography recently. But in 1956, down in Ecuador, in the jungle there, there were five missionaries who were working with a particular tribe trying to help them to come to understand who God was and what he's done and to see them manage the world under their authority. And while they were working with one of the tribes, they heard about this other tribe. 
pejoratively, they were called the Aka Indians, called the Weoden tribe. This was a tribe whose murder rate was 60%. This is a tribe that if you had a conflict, you usually got speared. Or at least one of the persons in the conflict got speared. This is a tribe that was on the, the pathway to extinction. And there were five missionary families who decided, we want to take the knowledge of God to this group of people. This is a group of people that, that when new people would come into it, they often got killed. But these missionaries, deeply concerned that the reputation of God was not seen by this group of people, were willing to risk everything to see that this group of people heard and understood who God was. And so for three weeks, they flew in the airplane, let a bucket down, giving gifts to the people there. Sometimes they got gifts back. For three weeks they did this. They began to think that we're finally going to have our first personal contact. And in fact, before they had that first contact, they sang a hymn, which we're going to sing in just a second. What these five missionaries, they now were camped out near the village where they were hoping to meet you know, this group of, of folks that they cared for very deeply. They finally had their first personal interaction. And what happened is the Weodoni, five or six of their tribe, speared all five. The missionaries killed them, macheted them as well. And all five of those men lost their lives in attempting to see the reputation of God be known by people who didn't know who God was and had lost touch with the reality of who God was. Now, when you hear a story like that, you realize that, 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 that extending the reputation of God doesn't mean your life is going to go swimmingly. And of course, you could say, well, what a waste. Five young men leaving widows and children. I mean, what, what a mess. But if you read the story of Steve Saint... Steve Saint is the son of Nate Saint. Nate Saint was the pilot, one of the five missionaries who was speared. Steve Saint grew up in that tribe earlier. After his father was killed, his mother and one of the other widows and his dad's sister moved in and continued to minister to this tribe. Forty years later, as Steve Saint writes, 40 years after his father was killed, he is in a village of the Wadani people, he is speaking to them and he's speaking to three of the people who killed his father. They have become Christians. They have now begun to follow Jesus Christ as they saw the beauty and glory of God as these widows and the sister of the slain continue to minister. They were able to see for the first time the great God that, that, that loved them and died for them. And, and the, not, not everybody in the tribe, but a large portion of the tribe came to faith in Jesus and the murder rate went down to nothing. The tribe was saved from extinction as they begin to order their lives around the beauty and glory of God and manage the world a little bit more under his authority. And there, Steve Saint, with these three other men who killed his father, reconciled and talking openly of what it's going to be like 
when the four of them go on to be with Jesus and they get to be reunited with the five men who laid their lives down for them that they never were able to think that because of their sacrifice they now knew the true God. Now the reality of, of God's glory is God is going to glorify his name in, with you, in spite of you, There's nothing we can do to to hinder the fact that God's glory will be known in all of the earth one day in the new heavens and the new earth. God's glory is not dependent upon you or me. But what this also means, if we align ourselves with God's purpose to a purpose that we know is going to be fulfilled, one day the knowledge of God will be everywhere. And in every person. And the world in the new world will be managed under the authority of God completely and comprehensively. Why not align yourself to a purpose that you know has a 100% chance of being fulfilled in the future? And what it means is, is all of our efforts to display the reputation of God when we keep our eyes on the, the, the way God glorified his own name at the cross, where we are motivated and empowered by that, when we seek to, 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 uh, you know, to, to get the reputation of God out and understood by more people, the knowledge of God, who he is and what he's done, all of our efforts to do that, as feeble as they are, all will be part of God's ultimate purpose that will be fulfilled. Why not get on board? with what we know God is up to now and God will complete in the future. So let me pray for us. And then when I finish praying, I will, we will sing the same hymn that those five men sang as they contemplated extending the reputation of God to a group of people who desperately needed God. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ. That when he died on the cross, he displayed and vindicated the name of God in his death, vindicated God's justice and his love and mercy. Lord, when we take a long look at that, it helps us and empowers us to be people who are consumed and passionate about seeing the reputation of God deepened among us, deepened in the church and extended throughout the world. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in light of these purposes more consistently. I pray that we would see that when we align ourselves with who God is and what he's done, if we align ourselves with the extension of the reputation of God, we are aligning ourselves with the very purpose that God is involved in and the very purpose that he promises to complete one day. And help us to remember that no matter how feeble our efforts at times and no matter how inconsistent we are at times, God will take all of our efforts to extend his reputation and use it for his glory. Help us, I pray, to be people who extend and deepen the reputation of God as we keep an eye on the cross where God vindicated his name and glory in an amazing way for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.